So as I was uh, trying to prepare which, what sermon do I want to start with, I thought, well, maybe I should start with the same sermon that I preached at my last church. And uh, cut out that early, huh? Uh, I thought maybe I should start with the same sermon that I preached at my last church for my first sermon. And, um, and then I thought I, I want to do something new. And so at some point, I would love to preach through the whole book of Romans, but um, that's not where the Lord is leading us first. And so I thought we'll just give a foretaste. But it's also a particularly fitting passage because the Apostle Paul, who's written uh, the core of the New Testament, um, gave his life to minister the gospel. He gave his life to preach the word. He gave his life to to spread the gospel to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And there was something that motivated him. There's something about the gospel that motivated him and empowered him and lifted him up. And as I thought, as I'm starting to come to you to preach before you every week, that maybe we should start where Paul starts. So that's where we are. So this, this passage gives us Paul's motivation to preach the gospel, Paul's motivation for his ministry. And so I'm going to have two points in my outline. The first is going to be what the gospel is, and the second is going to be what the gospel does. First point is, and if you're filling in the blanks in your outline, just the gospel, the gospel. And so Paul says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. The gospel is, a, is a, actually a word taken from propaganda uses. Uh, Peter and I were talking about this this week, that the, the word gospel is actually something that was used by conquering Roman emperors and, and Greek kings as, as they were coming in and they were conquering kingdoms. They would, they would put out propaganda saying, the gospel, the good news, the king has conquered. And so when the Old Testament was being translated into Greek into what today we call the Septuagint, the authors of the Septuagint thought, we want to proclaim the victory of the true king. And so they actually used the word gospel in the Old Testament, translation of the Septuagint, including the passage that we read in, in Isaiah for a call to worship this morning. And it was that language of the king coming to conquer, the promise of salvation, the promise of redemption in the Old Testament that the New Testament authors, and Paul in particular, picked up and said, we want to know about the gospel, the good news and so this is the gospel. And what is interesting about, about this, these two verses, what struck me as I was preparing this sermon is Paul here does not make explicit reference to any of the events of the gospel. Even though in the book of Romans, we see, I think we see a reference to the virgin birth of Christ. We see reference to the incarnation, to the perfect obedience of Christ, to the life and the sin-bearing death of Christ, to the resurrection of Christ, and even the ascension of Christ and the second coming of Christ. All of that is mentioned in Romans, and yet... For Paul, that is not what he brings out here. What he brings out is what is going on, what God is doing through those events. What is the story behind the story? What what are those events being knit together as a coherent argument to, to do? And here's what it is. It is God's power to salvation. The gospel is God's power to salvation. Now, immediately, that should be extremely offensive to us. Because... I don't think I need God's power to save me. I, would, I think I can save myself. I, I, think I, I think I would be a pretty good savior myself. But this tells us this is actually God's work. The gospel is about what God does for us. Maybe that's offensive to you, but think about it this way. Show of hands, how many of you are a Patriots fan? Right? Okay, a little bit more honesty. How many of you are a Patriots fan? All right, there we go. Okay. 
How many of you have found yourself getting emotionally heightened watching a Patriots game or thinking about a Patriots game? Yeah. How many of you have found yourself yelling at the television screen? Yeah. How many of you could get, how many of you could get on the phone right now and call Bill Belichick, however you pronounce his name? Peter could? He could try. And how many of you he would listen to you? Yeah. So you can go, you can call him all the way, and yet you allow yourself to feel empowered and to feel victorious over something you have absolutely no control over. And if that's true for something as trivial as playoff season, how much more true should this be about eternity? The gospel is God's power to salvation, not ours, which means that it is all of grace. The gospel is all of God's grace. The book of Romans talks about God's grace over and over again. The gospel is all about God's grace because the reality is God doesn't have to save. He's not obligated. There's no law that God is held accountable to that says he must save. God saves out of his good pleasure, out of his kindness to us. There's no one who can put God on the spot and show, say, God, in the fine print that says you will save us. God decides the rules. That's what makes him God. The reason that God saves is because he wants to save us. It's not just that he can. He actually wants to. He actually loves us enough to save us. The gospel is all of God's grace. To which maybe you you would want to ask, and this is a very good question, why do we need to be saved? I mean, what is so bad about me that I need to be saved from something? What, what went wrong with me that I need to be saved? And that's a really good question, and we'll answer it in a second. But perhaps a more important question is, what does God want to save me for? What, what is God's purpose in the gospel? Not just what does God want to save me from, but what does God actually want to do for me? What does God want to give me in the gospel? The book of Romans answers that. I'm going to flip. You can f- feel free to, to follow along in the book of Romans. I'm going to be moving all over the place, but you feel, feel free to follow along, or you can just listen. So this is some of what Paul tells us God wants to do for us in the gospel, starting in Romans 5. Therefore, since or because we have been justified by faith... We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. Knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Here's what this passage tells us God wants to give us in the gospel. Justification, we'll come back to that. Peace with God, we'll come back to that. Joy, hope. God's glory, God's spirit, which carries the love of God into our hearts. That's what God wants to give us in the gospel. Or or if we could make it slightly more concrete in the book of Romans. Romans chapter 8 says this, 
So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Here's what God wants to give us in the gospel. Here's the, the gift, the, the ultimate gift that God gives us in the gospel. Himself. The Father adopts us into the family. The, the Son makes us his little brothers. The Father gives us the Spirit by whom we can actually call the Father of Jesus our Father. The, the gift, the primary, the ultimate gift of God that He gives in the gospel is Himself. To welcome us into Himself so that we, through union with Christ, could share in this father-son relationship that Jesus Himself has. So that through the gospel, we could become as much sons of God as the Son is a son of God. What God wants to give us in the gospel is Himself. And you say, well, what benefit does that have Move down in chapter 8 to verse 31. It says this. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword, as it is written for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us. From the love of God and Christ Jesus our Lord. What is God doing in the gospel? What is God giving us in the gospel? What is the gospel for? So that God could give us himself. So that God could say to us, I am for you, not against you. I I am with you, not apart from you. You are mine, not someone else's. That's, That's what God wants to give us in the gospel. And it's a pretty good deal. And the question is, well, why can't we just, why, what, what do we have to be saved from so that we could have that? And here's, here's the simple answer. Ourselves. Ourselves. The, 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 what God needs to save us from 
is ourselves, more specifically our own sin. If you go back to Romans 1, Paul explains this a little bit more in Romans 1, starting in verse 18. It says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be made known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his external power and divine nature, his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened, claiming to be wise. They became fools, listen to this, and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore God gave them up in the lust of their heart to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who's blessed forever. Have you ever thought about this? The most tragic thing about the fall of man is that Adam and Eve already had God and they didn't want him. They already had God. They already had perfect communion, perfect fellowship, perfect intimacy, the eternal love of God. God walked with them in the garden and instead of that, instead of the creator, instead of the giver of every good gift, they chose the gift. They chose the creation. The, the, The ultimate tragedy of the gospel or of the fall The ultimate tragedy of the fall is that Adam and Eve could have had this all, and they did have it all, and they didn't want it. And so we've been made far from God. And the only way that we can get be brought back into relationship with God, the only way that we can that we can have God give us all of Himself is if somebody pays our debt. If somebody saves us, if somebody justifies us, if somebody makes us righteous because we do not have a righteousness of our own. And here is one of the beautiful themes of the whole Old Testament that must have been so frustrating for believers before Christ to figure out is that again and again and again in the Old Testament, God is in relationship with sinners. See this with Adam and Eve, you, you, you see this with uh, Noah, you see this with Abraham, again and again and again, God gives himself, he puts himself in covenant with these fallen humans, and as soon as he do, does that, the humans just break covenant. It happens again and again, and yet God, almost as if, almost as if the covenant didn't matter, God says, no, I'm still going to be for you. It is stunning if you read through the Old Testament almost as quick as the Israelites can break the laws of God. God gives them forgiveness. Why why would God 
why would God, in the words of Romans 4, justify the ungodly? Why would he call them righteous? They are not righteous. They are not covenant keepers. They are covenant breakers. They are not law keepers. They are law breakers. They are not righteous. They are unrighteous. Here's why. Romans 3. Romans 3. This is why it says that the righteousness of God is revealed in the gospel. In other words, it's explaining, here's how God can justify the ungodly. Romans 3, 21. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness, because in His divine forbearance He has passed over former sins. It was to show or to reveal His righteousness. This is the righteousness of God. This is the same righteousness that chapter 1 talks about. It was to show His righteousness at the present time so that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. The the reason that in the gospel God can justify the ungodly is because in the gospel God condemned the godly. The, The reason that in the gospel you and I can be counted as covenant keepers when we're covenant breakers is because Jesus was counted as a covenant breaker when he was really a covenant keeper. The the reason that you and I can be counted before God as righteous and pure and innocent is because Christ was not. It's through his blood that you and I are cleansed and purified, that we are made righteous, that our sins are removed from us as far as the east is from the west. That's the righteousness of God that is made known in the gospel. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for for in it the power of God is revealed to all who believe, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. Now, you'll notice in these short two verses, the word faith, or belief, or something like that. Faith and belief are the same root in Greek. It's mentioned four different times. So we see it in chapter 16. For everyone who believes, righteousness of God is revealed from faith, for faith. The righteous shall live by faith. Faith is mentioned there four different times. It's pretty important because you and I cannot earn that righteousness. How many of you have ever seen the movie Saving Private Ryan? Okay, good. I know it's rated R, so have I. At the end of that movie, you'll remember that, the, that at the very end of that movie, the, the, pers- the sergeant who's dying, played by Tom Hanks, says, earn this. And many of us, that's how we approach the gospel. We think we need to be up to snuff. We need to earn this. And yet, the clear message that we see in these two verses, let alone the rest of the Bible... So we can't earn this. It's a gift of faith. You and I cannot be good enough to be worthy of that righteousness of God. 
We can only be saved by faith. We can only be saved. We can only be justified by putting our faith in Christ. And maybe you say, what, is, what does faith mean? What does it mean to believe in Christ? I would just say it means to throw yourself wholeheartedly on Christ. To, to give all of yourself to him. Say, Jesus, I want all of you and I'll give you all of me. It means to say with Christ, I have been crucified. It means to say with Paul, I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. It means to confess your sins, to, to acknowledge that you've done wrong, and to believe in Him and ask Him to forgive you. It means a wholehearted throwing yourself upon Christ. That's what, that's what it means to have faith. That's what it means to believe. And as Scott pointed out to me this week, that word believe in chapter 16 is a present tense verb. It's a present tense verb. In other words, it's, you don't just believe once, you have to keep believing. Because true faith lasts. You know that song, Just Keep Believing? Just keep believing. You have to keep throwing yourself upon the mercy and the grace and the kindness of God. And what we see here Paul says is that it's the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. It's for the Jew first, also for the Greek. Now, one of the earliest extra-biblical references we have to the person of Christ is actually a decree of one of the Roman emperors. This actually comes before a lot of the New Testament was even written by a guy named Crestus, about a guy named Crestus and the synagogues in Rome. And there was these tumults and these riots that were being thrown in the synagogues in the city of Rome over somebody named Crestus. There's a really good German scholar named Reiner Reisner who argues that that Crestus is Jesus Christ. And that the synagogues in Rome, within 15 years of the death of Christ, were in tumult because Jews were coming to the faith and Jews were believing in Christ and they were leaving their synagogues or they were trying to change their synagogues into churches. There's all this conflict and so the Roman emperors just got sick of it and kicked all the Jews out. But by the time the epistle to the Romans is being written, the Jews are starting to come back to Rome. And these churches are now mainly made up of Gentiles and there's obviously conflict over that. Do we, what do we eat? What can we not eat? What language do we pray in? What language do we preach in? All these conflicts that are going on over the person of Christ in the synagogues and in the churches between Jew and Gentile. And a major part of the reason that the book of Romans is written is to remind them if one person is justified by faith, the other person is justified by faith. Effectively, all of chapters 12 through 15, effectively all of that is trying to reinforce that message. That if you've been reconciled to God by faith, if you have been uh, made a Christian by faith alone, if you're, the righteousness of God is given to you because of your faith, then that's true for all your Gentile friends too. And that's true for all your Jewish friends too. There's, there's, there's only one way to be made right with God. And that's through faith. That's what the gospel is. That's what the gospel is. And Paul gave his life for that message that none of us can be made right with God. None of us can have that perfect relationship with God on our own. That's what the gospel is, but the gospel also does something. So the gospel is something, the gospel does something. 
And this is what the gospel did for Paul. Chapter 16, or chapter 1, verse 16. For I am not ashamed. That's what the gospel did. Think, think about those words. For I am not ashamed of the gospel. For I am not ashamed. What does it mean to not be ashamed of the gospel? What does it mean to have no more shame? When we first read that, I think sometimes maybe we think, and I've thought that for a long time, that when Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, what he's trying to say is, because the gospel is true, I'm not going to be embarrassed about it. I'm going to go preach it in the public. And so we kind of apply that through like evangelism. Like, I need to be an evangelist. I need to go share the gospel because I don't want to be embarrassed. And after all, Romans even later in chapter 10 will say, if you confess with your mouth and believe with your heart that Jesus is Lord, you'll be saved. But I have a hard time believing that that's what Paul meant. Because... Well, that might not being ashamed by that might not be being ashamed of the gospel. It is being shamed by the gospel. Maybe some of you have been in a, in other contexts where you've felt someone try to use the gospel to shame you into obedience, like you would a dog who just won't learn how to get house trained. And I just have a hard time believing that's what Paul is talking about. I, I don't believe Paul means that the gospel should be used to embarrass people and shame them into submission. The, the closest parallel to this passage is the one that we read for our responsive reading in 2 Timothy. It says this, Therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Lord, of our Savior Jesus Christ, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, for which I was appointed a preacher and apostle and teacher, which is why I suffer as I do, but I am not ashamed." Same word as what we see in Romans 1.16. But I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed. To not be ashamed of the gospel is a wholehearted confidence and trust that God will keep his word. See, what is on offer in the gospel is not shame, but honor. It's not hurt, but healing. It's not condemnation, it's justification. What is on offer in the gospel is not estrangement, but adoption. What is not on offer in the gospel is to be broken and beat into submission. What is on offer in the gospel is joy. Joy inexpressible and filled with glory, as Peter tells us. What is on offer in the gospel is to find your whole identity, your whole self in Christ redeemed and renewed and resurrected. 
What is not on offer in the gospel is to be embarrassed and to be broken down until you just listen. Until you, you, you know that you're supposed to share the gospel, so you might as well. No, I think what Paul means when he says in Romans 1, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, he says, I have been changed I've been renewed, I've been redeemed, I've been reconciled by the power of the blood, and I am not ashamed of it. That is what God has for us in the gospel. That's what the gospel does, is no more shame. No more shame. And maybe you came into this room today, maybe you were thinking that's what the gospel does, is it shames me into obedience. And I just want you to tell you, want to tell you nothing could be further from the truth. And maybe you've never put your faith in Christ because you've thought it'd be nice to have him as Lord later, but I'd really like to have fun now. And I just want to tell you, there is no deeper joy. There's no deeper honor. There's no deeper righteousness than to put your faith in Christ right now. True faith leads to this kind of joy. True faith leads to this kind of wholehearted confidence in God. Because if you wholeheartedly trust in the gospel of Jesus Christ, there's no way that it doesn't well up inside of you with joy and affection for the Lord. That's what's on offer in the gospel. That's what God does in the gospel. And that joy, that shamelessness, that pure ecstasy in Christ is what sustains through suffering. If you'll notice the end of this little section here, the righteous shall live by faith. That's a quotation from the book of Habakkuk, Habakkuk chapter two. And Habakkuk is one of my favorite prophets in the Old Testament because Habakkuk is, um, Habakkuk is incredibly honest and he knows that his people are unrighteous. And he says, God, why don't you give us justice? Why don't you make everything okay? And God says, all right, I, I will send the Babylonians to take your people into exile. That's what you want. And Habakkuk says, well, wait a minute. You know who the Babylonians are, right? They're, they're, wick- they're worse than we are. And, and Habakkuk looks and, and down the future. It's almost like, like a, I'm a big Lord of the Rings nerd. It's almost like he can see the clouds over Mordor. And he just knows atrocity and destruction and brokenness and ravaging and everything that comes along with war, that's coming to my people. And God tells him, the just shall live by faith. The only power to be sustained, the the only thing that can keep you moving and keep you going as a Christian when you're going through suffering when you get that diagnosis that you're not expecting, when someone betrays you, when you you feel like the world is bearing down on you, is if you can say with Paul, I am not ashamed of the gospel. That's the power of the gospel. That's what the gospel does. Because through Christ, God has brought us into relationship with him in the gospel. We need have no more shame. So let me give you just a couple quick points of application from this passage, okay? 
Number one, this is God's power to save, not ours. If you have a problem with control, listen to that. This is God's power to save, not ours. God's the one who does the saving. God's the one who works on our behalf. God's the one who, as we saw in Psalm 98 earlier, God is the one who exercises his arm of salvation. It's like in Psalm 46 when God says, be still and know that I am the Lord. If he's the Lord, who's not? Everybody else. The gospel is God's power to save, not ours. The gospel is how God saves us. And if we can't get that right, if we think the gospel is all about Jesus coming and setting a good example so we can just be like him and be good enough to go to heaven, we have just totally missed the point. The gospel is God's power to salvation, not ours. Secondly, you must believe. You must believe. You, you not your parents for you, although I'm okay with the covenant, don't worry. You must believe. You must confess your sins and put your faith in Christ. You must throw yourself upon the rock of ages. Not somebody else. Your spouse can't do that for you. Your kids can't do that. You must believe. Secondly, or thirdly, you must keep believing. I grew up in a, in a church which loved the Lord. People there were great. I, uh, my childhood pastor preached the gospel. He was, he was a Bible-believing man. But the gospel was kind of framed as the entrance to the Christian life. But the gospel is the Christian life. We never get over the gospel. We never get beyond the gospel. We just get deeper in it. And you say, I can't imagine there's anything else. We'll just give it a little bit more time. We will spend eternity unpacking the depths of the gospel. But we got to keep believing. Keep throwing yourself. Maybe you're going through a time of suffering like we just talked about. The only thing that's going to sustain you through that is if you keep believing. Number four. Number four. Stop hiding. Stop hiding. Perhaps one of the most terrifying and comforting things you can think of is this. God knew who you were when he bought you. You didn't have buyer's remorse. I love doing premarital counseling with, with folks, and if you are engaged, about to get married, premarital counseling is a great way. You can either do premarital counseling or counseling. Take your pick. Premarital counseling, I love doing it with, with them, and you sit with these couples that are new, and they're excited, and they're just excited to get married, and you just, you just think... You don't even know who your spouse is yet. And you won't for some time. And that's okay. That's normal. Like, you don't really know who your spouse is until you get married to them. God knew who you were when he said, I do. It's not a surprise to him. He doesn't have buyer's remorse about it either. He doesn't get six months in and think, this isn't fun anymore. No, God knew who you were. In fact, God knows that you are worse than you even think that you are. God knows that you're worse than even your spouse thinks that you are. (laughs) And he bought you anyways. So why are you hiding? 
Why bother keeping that sin in the closet? Why bother keeping that sin under the rug? It's not like God doesn't know about it. Through confession comes forgiveness. To to bring that thing into the open, to have the courage to confess that to other brothers and sisters, that will change you. You have everything to gain and nothing to keep from hiding that sin. So stop it. Stop hiding. Number five. We're going to talk more about this next week. If God justifies you by faith, he also justifies others by faith. If God justifies you by faith, he also justifies others by faith. If God has forgiven us and freed us by the power of the gospel, then we lose our right to condemn other people. We just do. If we want to be forgiven, we must be forgiving More on that next week. And number six. Bask in the love of God today for the trials tomorrow. Bask in the love of God today for the trials tomorrow. There's a good chance in the next year there's something that will happen to you that you will think this is going to alter my life forever. There's a good chance that there's someone that you know that will not be in your life in a year. There's a good chance that your next year, maybe month, maybe week, maybe next hour, is going to be marked by disappointment. And the only way that I know and I know I haven't suffered as much as maybe some of you have, but the only way that I know to get through something that's devastating, that can change your life forever, the the only way that I have found to be able to hold your head above water and breathe is if we bask in the love of God. I love this hymn that we're going to sing in a second. Here is love. Vast as the ocean, loving kindness as the flood, when the prince of life, our ransom, shed for us his precious blood. Who his love will not remember, who can cease to sing his praise, he can never be forgotten throughout heaven's eternal days. On the mount of crucifixion, fountains open deep and wide, through the floodgates of God's mercy flowed a vast and gracious tide. Grace and love like mighty rivers poured incessant from above, heaven's peace and perfect justice kissed a guilty world in love. Let me all thy love accepting love thee ever all my days. Let me seek thy kingdom only. And my life be to thy praise. Thou alone shalt be my glory. Nothing in the world I see. Thou hast cleansed and sanctified me. Thou thyself hast set me free. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have saved us for yourself. 
We thank you that you have saved us from ourselves for yourself. And that all the sin, all the brokenness, all the shame, the pain, the regret from our past is taken away and nailed to that tree. Father, we thank you that before the throne of God above, before the cross, there is no more shame. Father, I pray for anyone who's here today. Maybe they are going through suffering and disappointment, through difficulty and loss, maybe through doubt. Father, would you minister to them deeply in this second? Would you remind them how deep and wide the love of God in Christ is for them? Father, I pray for those here who are, who are Christians. I pray that maybe this sermon would serve to revive them in your gospel. That you would stir in them something new. Reawaken them to their first love. And Father, I also pray for those in this room, maybe who have never put their faith in Christ. Maybe who know the facts of the gospel, but haven't quite grasped it. Who honestly couldn't say with Paul, I am not ashamed. Because they are. God, you cause the scales to come off of their eyes. Would you open their hearts so they might see your son for who he is and behold him and believe in him and have what Peter calls joy inexpressible. So Father, now I pray that you would fill our lungs with praise as we respond to your gracious word. And may it be a sweet, sweet sound in your ears. Amen.